0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio. Exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive.
2: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: A headache can upend your day and take you off your game. But a dose of aspirin or acetaminophen usually takes care of it. But other headaches, like
3: migraines, that's a different story. It reaches a level of moderate intensity so that it makes it difficult for you to function normally. And it's accompanied by nausea, sometimes vomiting, and or light and sound sensitivity. It tends to worsen even with routine activities.
2: Also on the program, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa took thousands of lives and frightened the world. Now that it's officially over, we'll hear about what we've learned and what could help prevent another outbreak.
1: And newborns at home, tips for caring for your new baby and for yourself.
2: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, headaches, Tracy, they come with more names than you might imagine for such a a common medical condition. There's cluster headaches, an external compression headache, cough headache, rebound headache, sinus headache, the worst sex headache. That's the not what? tonight, dear headache. Oh my yeah. goodness! <laughs> the ice cream headache, and of course migraine headache, and that's only a partial list. But actually, I'm out of breath. <laughs> well, I'll
2: take over. <laughs> right. For most of us, a headache prompts us to reach for some aspirin or some acet- acetaminophen, and in a few hours, we'll feel better. But for some, headaches can signal a serious underlying medical problem. Here to fill us in on the different kinds of headaches, what causes them, and what they might be signaling is Mayo Clinic Neurologist, Dr. Michael Couture. Welcome to the program, Dr. Couture.
1: It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks. Good to have you on the program. I guess the question is, where do we start? This is, uh, there's so many different kinds of headaches, and this is such a common problem.
3: Well, in the course of our lives, probably over 90% of the population have a headache, Um, and... Uh, the most common ones are probably sort of mild, benign problems that crop up uh, and can be handled with simple analgesics. But the people that wind up seeing us uh, have recurrent headaches that uh, increasingly interfere with their lives and make it difficult to have a job or take care of their family. Um, the headaches happen uh, as a result of a system that we all are built with. It's a system put in place to protect our brain. It's sort of the burglar alarm to protect our brain. So when appropriately activated by, you know, a little... Uh, too much alcohol the night before or not getting enough sleep or missing a meal. Uh, it's an appropriate uh, sort of alarm system that, hey, uh, the brain is in peril, or if you've had a head injury, it's uh, quite appropriate. Uh, but for the patients that have it day in and day out, it ceases to be an adaptive response and becomes a big problem on to function on a day-to-day basis. So those are the people that we end up taking care of. Um, the most common type of headache that brings people into the office uh, are those disabling headaches that we call migraine, uh, but we see a whole host of other uh, headaches caused by various things, just about anything that uh, can uh, perturbed the nervous system can result in a headache. So when your brain
1: hurts, you have a, you have a headache, your brain is telling you something. Uh, the brain itself doesn't hurt,
3: but the supporting structures around it, the meninges and the blood vessels that supply the uh, blood supply to the brain, give uh, the blood flow to the brain, are... Uh, exquisitely uh, innervated with pain fibers so that uh, anything that is in the neighborhood and might potentially injure the brain can cause this um, activation of these pain fibers and result in a headache.
2: The most common headaches may be I would say luckily for a majority of people are things like you said, you know, too much alcohol or not enough sleep or you skipped a meal when uh, somebody I always just was thinking my kids will say I have a headache and I'll say drink a glass of water. I mean, what is the main thing that gives people a headache? Is it a lack of sleep or food or what is it?
3: It depends on the individual, but those are very common causes. Very common causes. Uh, fatigue, uh, exposure to um, little uh, febrile illnesses often bring a headache as a part of the syndrome. But those are generally benign, short lived, and they don't happen again and again. And when they start to happen, uh, a few days a week, then you know there's something else probably going on.
1: Do we know what actually is going on in the brain while you're
3: having a headache? Oh, well, there's a whole uh, circuitry that's uh, activated uh, when you have a headache. Generally, um, when those uh, fibers even, even either in the meninges or in the blood vessels are activated. They uh, send their depolarization in through an area in the brainstem called the nucleus caudalis, the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. Then there is uh, it's projected onto different parts of the brain where various aspects of the headache are mediated. There are parts of the brain that tell you, oh, it's my head that's hurting and not my foot that's hurting, or it's the right side of my head that's hurting, or the le- not the left. It also gives us the emotional response uh, to the head pain. Uh, that's a big big part of it. As uh, Your autonomic nervous system is activated and your uh, limbic system is activated. Uh, so it's a quite a complex process for such a seemingly simple thing that we all
1: experience. Yeah, too complex for probably most of us to understand. But the, the meninges are like the saran wrap around the brain. That's Correct. The it's a
3: fibrous covering that yeah. lines the skull. And inside that, the brain sort of floats uh, in cerebrospinal fluid. It's sort of a shock absorber. Uh, and cleaning system for the brain. Do you have a a recommendation
1: with regard to to what medication tends to work best for the common everyday headache, what over-the-counter medication? There are obviously several available
3: probably the most effective would be like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication like an ibuprofen or a a naproxen. We use quite a bit of those. If you use too often, though, they uh, increase the acidity in your stomach and make it difficult to use, so you create new problems. Um, uh, Acetaminophen does not do that quite so often but um, and and can be be quite effective for mild to moderate headaches, but typically those that are moderate to severe require like a non-steroidal treatment.
2: You mentioned uh, the shock absorber part of the meninges, is that what it's called?
3: Well, it's actually the spinal fluid. Oh,
2: the spinal fluid. So okay. it's uh,
3: floating uh, inside there, so if you stop suddenly, your brain doesn't crash into the front of your skull. This it just floats thing. into yeah. the front of your skull. And
2: that's what we're learning more about, you know, as we learn more about concussions or traumatic brain injuries. What about when uh, it's not you know, sleep or food or alcohol that caused the headache, but that you did actually hit your head. Right. Is how does your head respond differently to that type of a headache? pain?
3: No, it's the same same old response. It's actually one of those instances in which the activation system is appropriate because it's warning you of potential or even warning you that you have had uh, some injury to your brain.
1: You mentioned that 90% of people at one time or another are going to, going to have a headache. It's sort of like back pain, isn't it? Correct. Uh, the, the orthopedists see back pain. You see uh, people well, with Well, it's headaches. the
3: same process, different different part of your body. Who's at risk? Are there, are there certain people who are more likely to get headaches than others? Yes, believe it or not, there are people in the population who go through their whole lives and never have a headache. Isn't that and uh, to a large extent, that is probably genetically determined. Um, a whole swath of the population, however, uh, is highly prone to headaches, and sometimes from childhood onward they struggle. Um, it uh, often, in those individuals, ends up manifesting itself as something like migraine.
1: What about uh, headaches in children? Not very common, right? No. Uh, and are they reason for concern if they uh, occur frequently?
3: Actually, they're fairly common in children. Um, and if they're accompanied by um Neurological symptoms, they would, could possibly be some cause for
1: concern. And when you say neurologic symptoms, like, what would be an example?
3: Um, abnormal ability to walk, uh, alteration in consciousness, the appearance of seizures, um, because uh, in very young children, sometimes that can warn of some sort of a structural cause. Um, as it can at, at any point in a person's life, but uh, when compared to the benign primary headache disorders, um, it's, it's very uncommon. Uh, in, in very young children, though, you pay more attention. Okay, so in young children, if
1: they had some sort of deficit associated with it, or something associated with the headache, that might that would be a reason to to see a physician. Absolutely. What about in an adult? Uh, when at, at what point in time, with regard to headaches and frequency, severity, should they think about seeing a well, the a physician? decades
3: of life in which you have the uh, high occurrence of these benign. When I say benign, meaning that it's not life-threatening, ultimately they're not so benign when you're having them. Um, the decades of life when you have these primary headache disorders, uh, it begins in uh, early adolescence, and in the 20s, 30s, 40s, um, quite prominent. And the relative occurrence uh, of a headache driven by, say, a brain tumor or an aneurysm or some ominous cause is very, very small. The percentage is very, very small. As we age... Uh, after the age of 60, the appearance of a new headache in a person through the course of their life who n- has not really had very many headaches, that becomes a little more uh, cause for some further investigation. We typically will uh, be more prone to image these individuals because the decades of life that it disappears and is most Uh, prominence probably in the late teens early 20s and the 30s so we don't worry so much when an adult uh, appears with a headache especially if they have the characteristics uh, that are suggestive of a known syndrome Um, but before the age of six and after the age of 60 we pay more attention
2: We're talking about headaches with Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Michael Couture. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact.
3: Migraines can
1: begin at any age, though most people have their first migraine during adolescence. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is neurologist and headache expert, Dr. Michael Crutere. We've talked in general about headaches, that they, they involve 90% of the population. Most of them are benign. The ones that might be a little bit worrisome are in children less than age 6 and adults over the age of 60, if you've never had a problem with headaches before. We've talked somewhat about the uh, the risk factors. And we wanted to ask another a uh, couple of questions about risk factors.
3: And that was about withdrawal from caffeine, that kind of headache. Very common. Caffeine actually tends to suppress headaches, but when your body has a constant supply of it and you are abstinent and you uh, sleep late on Saturday morning and don't have your morning coffee, it's not uncommon to awaken with a a pressure-like sensation across the front of your head. Now, in the person who's not really headache prone, that's not such a problem. It's something that you reach for the cup of coffee or an aspirin and it goes away. Uh, People who have a tendency toward migraine or other more um, severe disorders, it acts as a, a blasting cap in their keg of dynamite, pushing them down the road to that migraine headache. So we tend to Counsel our patients who are prone to headaches to avoid uh, frequent high usage of caffeine.
1: And what about uh, the other kind of headache I wanted to ask, be sure and ask you about was stress or tension headaches? Pretty
3: common. This- term stress headache is kind of complicated. Um, the actual definition of a tension type headache is basically the opposite of migraine. Basically, it's a pressure-like headache that is a mild to moderate intensity that is not associated with any of the migraine features like nausea or vomiting or lighter sound sensitivity. It's kind of that mild, nondescript headache that most people experience from time to time. Now, for years, we assumed that it was associated with environmental stress. But in fact, Uh, can occur very often in the absence of stress. And um, stress causes all kinds of headaches. (laughs) It's anything that perturbs your nervous system can generate a headache. So um, that mild uh, kind of headache is pretty nonspecific and and shouldn't be always assumed to be related to stress. Well, we wish all headaches were benign, but they're
1: not, are they? Let's talk about uh, the big M.
2: Yeah, the migraines. We'll start with myth or matter of fact. Migraines can begin at any age, Is that a myth or is that a fact?
3: It can begin at any age. I have uh, patients who report the beginning, their first attack, uh, five, six years old. Mm.
2: If you've never had a migraine and you just have had a really bad headache, what is it that makes it a migraine? How does it pull it into that category?
3: Well, typically untreated, a migraine attack will last at least four hours. Uh, It reaches a level of moderate intensity so that it makes it difficult for you to function normally. And it's accompanied by nausea, sometimes vomiting, and or light and sound sensitivity. In the eyes? Uh, In the eyes. Yeah. So do you get a headache in your eyes, too? Oh, it's not in the eyeball itself, but it's in the orbit where the eyes sit, where a lot of the pain is. Um, they can also you can also tell a migraine. It tends to worsen even with routine activities. If you try to do normal activities, walking up downstairs, it makes the intensity of the pain worse.
1: With regard to what's going on inside the brain, is it the same as the everyday headache, only just a hundred times worse, more intense?
3: In some in some sense, yes. Typically, the other types of headaches are not associated with the transient focal neurologic symptoms that we call the aura that uh, pretty well pegs it as a migraine. If you experience a a blind spot in your vision before the onset or numbness in your face and hand uh, or you have a period where you can't speak, those are all uh, associated with migraine uh, in about a third of people who get migraine attacks. Do we know what causes the migraine headache? I think that for the majority of people, uh, it's inherited in their families. You can blame mom and dad. Um, It can be acquired, I suspect, uh, in many instances uh, by head trauma or some other uh, injury. But um, for most people... Uh, it can be traced in their family back generations. Is a migraine the same as a cluster headache? No, it's a quite distinct uh, syndrome. A cluster headache uh, is a unilateral, extremely severe headache that occurs around the eye. Uh, The attacks themselves are shorter. They last about uh, 15 minutes, typically to about an hour, but as long as three hours. And during that three hours, it's as if a hot poker is being stabbed in your eye. Your eye gets red and swells. Your nose runs. You sweat on your forehead on the side of the pain. It is an extremely severe uh, headache disorder that has been compared in its level of intensity to uh, childbirth and a kidney stone.
1: Oh, my Ooh, goodness. I don't want one of those.
3: No. So uh, with
1: regard to diagnosis of these two uh, conditions, severe type headache conditions, the cluster headache and the migraine, can you make the diagnosis by history? alone, or are there other tests that you do to confirm it? Or-
3: in, in general, the history is made on the basis of uh, the description of the individual acute attack. The duration of a cluster headache is three hours or less. Migraine is four hours or more. Uh, cluster headache is not associated with uh, the nausea and the light sound sensitivity uh, migraine is. Uh, patients with migraine want to retreat back into a quiet room, not have any sensory input. Cluster headache patients are up pacing, hitting the wall, uh, quite agitated. All right. What we all
1: want to know is we know that migraines have been notoriously difficult to treat. But it's my understanding that you've got some new drugs some some new ways to prevent migraines.
3: Migraine is complicated. Yeah. Uh, it probably... Is based on complex genetics, meaning that thing that's not exactly right is not the same thing in everybody or Mm -hmm. every family. Mm -hmm. And the kind of treatment that you respond to as a preventative is related to the underlying biological cause, the driver. Every medicine that we have that works as a migraine preventative was found fortuitously when people were given these medicines for another disorder. And we, at this point, don't have a biological rationale on how to give... What medicine to what person to be able to predict what's going to work? So it ends up being this series uh, of, of trials. Um, there are um, some new things on the horizon. I think you were probably referring to the new CGRP antibody, the biological that I'm hoping will be available to us in the next couple of years. Um, it is uh, built to either bind to the CGRP molecule, which is has been associated with migraine, uh, or to the receptor, and uh, we have quite uh, favorable preliminary information about its ability to prevent migraine.
1: But in general, you're able to prevent a, a significant percentage of migraines. Today, Correct.
3: right? Of the patients that we see, I would say probably up to 80%, we can substantially reduce the frequency of their headaches. That's pretty encouraging, isn't it?
2: Because Dr. Shives mentioned it at the beginning, and was and I kind of raised my eyebrows about that, a sex headache,
3: I have oh. to just ask. That's is its there own people specific kind of headache.
2: Who really experience headaches during sex?
3: Yes, yes. and it's a, a disorder that we see from time to time. A small percentage of those people have an unruptured aneurysm, So whenever someone presents with that history, we will always check them for that. But it's a small percentage, but there is this primary disorder, meaning that there is not a known cause, where, uh, just as you approach orgasm, Mm -hmm. you have an explosive headache, almost like a, what, people experience with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Very severe. It certainly destroys the moment.
1: <laughs> men
3: as well as women have this? Men, <laughs> a, men as well as women.
2: Wow. Well, thanks, Dr. Couture, for sharing your insights and advice about headaches. Dr. Michael Couture is a neurologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa is officially over. We'll hear what scientists have learned from it that could help in fighting the next outbreak.
4: And
1: having a new baby can be a joy and a challenge. We'll have some suggestions on handling those first few weeks of newborn care. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. This dog, old Cooper, is good for his owner's health.
3: And there are overwhelming data. When you hold a cat, when you groom a horse, when you pet a dog, there is a surge of feel-good hormones that we can measure. Prolactin, oxytocin, and dopamine.
0: Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Edward Cragen says owning a pet also boosts your immune system.
3: That your immune system becomes more robust, more infection-fighting, When you have that reason to live in your life.
0: Pets have other health benefits too. The CDC says they may lower blood pressure, cholesterol, triglycerides, and feelings of loneliness. Pets give you a reason to get up and get moving. Dr. Cragen has a saying, it's get pets, not pills. Because pets can help improve your mental and physical health. I'm Vivian Williams, and for more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. It was just about a year ago that the massive Ebola virus outbreak that affected several African countries appeared to have peaked. Throughout much of the preceding year of 2014, the number of cases has had grown exponentially and many thousands of people had died. The fear of Ebola swept across the globe, and many countries, including the U.S., began preparing for possible outbreaks within their borders. Now, a year or more later, the West African Ebola outbreak seems to have run its course. Scientists following the epidemic have marked what they call the two incubation periods since the last case related to the latest epidemic. But that doesn't mean that Ebola has been eradicated. There will likely be more cases. And here to bring us up to date on the Ebola situation is Mayo Clinic Infectious Disease Specialist and frequent guest, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Welcome back to the program.
4: Uh, thanks for having me. Um,
2: because of Ebola, that's the first time that I ever met you, that you came on the radio show to talk to us about Ebola.
4: <laughs> well, you're welcome, I guess.
2: <laughs> what is the situation with
4: Ebola at this point? So thankfully, and we are uh, you know, cautiously optimistic that since we haven't seen any cases in the last 42 days in any of the previously affected West African countries, that uh, you know, this is really the first time um, since really March of you know, 2014 that we haven't had um, any, any cases. Now, um, this is really great news, right. that sort of stopping the cycle of, of transmission, uh, this, I, I do want the public, however, to know that we are likely to still see sporadic cases coming up. So uh, we've had t- over 28,000 people who were infected. Over 11,000 have died. But that does leave a lot of survivors, which is great. However, uh, well, we do know that this virus can remain latent for a few months, and usually remains latent in the, what we call immunologic uh, mm-hmm. sanctuaries, the eyes, but also semen, hmm. and uh, for for a few months. Wow. Um, and so p- you know, people can, unfortunately, transmit. And obviously, people are told, you know, if you're a survivor, you, you, know, you really should be abstaining for se- from sex until we're pretty sure, we're certain that the virus has gone from the semen. Um, but however, because of these immunologic sanctuaries and, and the potential for latency, the, you know, there may be sporadic cases that come up, uh, even within these West African countries. Now, that should not start panic, mm-hmm. right, that, oh, I thought this was gone. Mm-hmm. We're kind of ex- expecting this to happen for the next you know, couple of months to a couple of years. Uh, we've learned a lot from as an international community that the world is getting a lot smaller,
2: I What I remember you saying, um, again, almost two years ago, and then again last year, yeah. when it started to kind of cross the ocean and arrive in this country, and people started getting completely freaked out, is that kind of my takeaway from our conversations were the real story is the lack of infrastructure and health care in these countries.
4: That's exactly right. The... And
2: so that is what the World Health Organization was really trying to That's another fire they're trying to put out in addition to trying to treat that outbreak at the time.
4: Yeah, I think we've learned a lot in that these previously isolated areas where uh, if something happened there, it's probably not going to affect the rest of the world. Well, that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. Because of commerce and international travel, something that happens in a very remote part of of the world can very much impact the rest of the world and even here in the United States. And so it is incumbent upon us in the industrialized world to actually help these developing countries to develop uh, their public health infrastructure so that they have uh, running water, flushing toilets, clean water, yeah, clean water, <laughs> uh, vaccinations, these sort of things, uh, which uh, will help those countries but also prevent these uh, infections from coming into our own country if, if, if that is what is ne- what is needed to drive to drive this. Um, When when we see further sporadic cases, uh, I would expect them to be very quickly contained. You'd be able to identify all of the people who are potentially exposed, make sure that they're uh, quarantined or Mm -hmm. really observed. Uh, Of course, now we have experimental vaccines that we're Mm -hmm. using in in people who have been exposed. And so I would expect whatever uh, sporadic cases that we see be very quickly contained. And so I'm trying to sort of squash whatever Mm -hmm. – you know, preemptively squash whatever panic may may ensue when we do see uh, resurgent cases. Uh, one other thing is it does uh, come up from uh, so the zoonotic reservoir seems to be uh, the bats, uh, which may infect monkeys and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And so that zoonotic reservoir is not gone and so we may still see sporadic cases in africa coming from the zoonotic reservoir
2: all right uh you of course keep being track of infectious diseases and that's what you do with mayo clinic and there's more than ebola to worry about i'm sure that in your work day that's probably a small percentage of the time that you spend <laughs> but there's a couple of other things that i need to ask you about because speaking of this country there is now dengue fever in hawaii Yes. And I don't know what that is, but it can't be good.
4: Well, the other name for uh, dengue fever, fever is bone break fever. Oh, Lord. Which uh, actually sounds like exactly what it does. It makes people feel awful.
2: That's more of a scary name than dengue fever.
4: Right, right. Why don't we just call it bone break <laughs> fever? Bone break fever. Break fever. I'm going right. to change it to that. Right. So people feel awful. High fevers, muscle ache, bone pain, these sort of things. And some people very well die. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, dengue is not endemic in Hawaii. Uh, however, there have been outbreaks before. Uh, for example, I think, I think in 2011 there was one on the island of Oahu. Uh, and that outbreak was four people. Hmm. Now, this outbreak, we're talking about over 200. Hmm. And this is on the big island of Hawaii. And what usually happens is somebody who is infected with dengue goes gets bitten by a mosquito and then you have this cycle of transmission. Uh, you, it is not Transmitted person to person, you really do need that vector. Uh, it's the
2: mosquito bite that does it.
4: It is a mosquito bite, mm-hmm. and so then it gets from uh, some infected person to an uninfected person, and then if they get a mosquito bite while they're sick or things like that, and you can sort of uh, continue propagate uh-huh. the the infection. And so uh, what what people are doing now is uh, anyone who has been infected making sure they're getting health care and things like that or and <laughs> helping them but also keeping them away from mosquitoes sure uh and you know, so this is preventable and mm-hmm. that somebody who's going to hawaii for vacation and they should continue to go yes. to hawaii for vacation <laughs> um, and all they have to do is just make sure that they are taking proper precautions if they're going to go into mosquito uh, areas and so uh you know, insect repellent that contain at least 25% DEET, putting it on multiple times a day. Uh, if you're really into sort of the the thick of it, into into the, into the wilderness mm-hmm. uh, and really into mosquito territory, uh, you know, really think about sleeping under a, uh, uh, a uh, mosquito net. Mosquito net, gotcha. Or if you're going to be out in it, putting on permethrin-laden clothing. Uh, but the big thing is, uh, this is preventable through by preventing mosquito bites. Gotcha. Uh,
2: what about the Zika virus? That was in South America. I'm sure it probably still is. But you said that a, a case of it popped up in Dallas.
4: Yeah. Now this was an imported case. Somebody who had traveled. Sure. Uh, is that mosquito also? Also mosquito born. Oh, it, I hate those mosquitoes. So it turns out that mosquitoes are actually uh, <laughs> result in m- the the animal that results in the most human deaths in the <sighs> world. Yeah. Uh, it's I think deer in the United States <laughs> because of yeah. uh, vehicle collision, but worldwide because of malaria, because of dengue, because of chikungunya virus. Maybe even cause mosquitoes. Of mosquitoes, uh, right? Does it's,
2: Zika virus make you feel like you've got bones that want to break, or what is that like? It.
4: Uh, so most people who get Zika virus infection actually don't feel anything or, hmm. and uh, they feel just fine. Maybe twenty percent develop fever and some of these muscle aches and things like that. The concern, however, is that if it infects a pregnant woman, especially yeah uh, later in their pregnancy mm-hmm. it can result in birth defects, ah. microcephaly sort of small mm-hmm. small brain sort of things and uh you and the, you know the evidence really linking this is emerging and so uh but likely there there is a link um and we're finding this more out in, in places that have more infections such so as brazil um, but you know it's concerning when we start talking about unborn children mm-hmm. right that uh, can get uh, can have birth defects as a result of an infection. We've seen this before with uh, cytomegalovirus, CMV, and also rubella, which we were you know, thankfully able to sort of kick to the side because of vaccination. Of course, now our vaccine rates are declining, <laughs> uh, and we may very well start to see a resurgence of rubella disease. But this is why we're concerned about Zika virus.
2: And the good news of our conversation, because we're almost out of time, is that flu, a flu update, is the fourth thing on my list. So it's been a good flu season so far it 's
4: been a slow flu season so That's far good. with a few uh, interesting twists and turns and early on it was, it things have been fairly late the the viruses we were seeing was that. Uh, influenza A H3N2. All that people need to know is that it uh, tends to be more aggressive, uh, and that's what we saw last year. And uh, the strain that circulated did not match well with the vaccine strain. This year, early on, we were seeing this H3N2 strain that was contained in the vaccine, but in the last few weeks, actually starting to see more H1N1 infections as the epidemic starts to increase uh, throughout the country. So it's likely, I think, to be another H1N1 year. Uh, It is contained within the vaccine. Um, Is it too late to get a flu shot? It is not too late to get a flu shot. Right now would be a great time to get it as the epidemic is starting to come up.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tosh, for the latest on the Ebola virus, dengue fever, Zika virus, and a flu update.
4: All right. Thank you very much.
2: Dr. Pratish Tosh is an infectious disease specialist at Mayo. clinic we're going to take a short break when we come back tips on newborn care for both babies and parents you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A newborn baby in the house. Do you remember? I do. Seems like it was just yesterday. But uh, what? talk about a whirlwind of activity, huh? At first, newborn health might seem limited to round-the-clock feeding, bathing, diapering, soothing. But you know what? There's more to newborn health than just the basics. Other newborn health issues include caring for your newborn's skin, decoding your newborn's cries, and promoting your newborn's development. Joining us
2: in the studio to talk about newborn care is Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist, Dr. Summer Allen. Welcome to the program, Dr. Allen. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Our news director has a new baby at his house. He and his wife had their just had their third baby, and he said you have to have Dr. Allen to talk about what has changed um, with taking care of newborns, because this baby is their third. And he said even as the three babies have come along, things have changed in newborn care. And I noticed that was just with my two, that it was different between the two. Too. So, what has changed with taking care of newborns?
5: What changes is, you know, again, our knowledge over time, our ability to observe, you know, different concerns and different things that have happened. Um, one of the events that I noticed with a, a family that I cared for who had. Kiddos ranging from 18 years old to when they came to see me for a newborn. And when we talked about uh, sudden infant death syndrome, so SIDS, and how to reduce that, I explained to them that the recommendations were to lie an infant on their back to sleep. And they looked at me and they said, well, first it was on their stomach. Then it was on their side. Mm-hmm. And now it's on their back. <laughs> and yeah. again, and, and fair, and in all fairness and are right, it had evolved and changed. And I explained to them what was the best available evidence we had at this time and also different factors that we've identified, like, um, having a non-smoking home. Um, there's also some um, literature supporting the use of a, of a pacifier in those cases may reduce that incidence of SIDS. So, you know, lying an in infant, that's one of the things we talk to parents before they go home is to make sure that their infants are on a flat firm surface, lie, lying on their back, and to be um, careful about any loose blankets, loose stuffed animals. Uh, also the bumpers in the cribs, they've invented the kind of mesh ones or opening ones instead of those nice comfy uh, bumpers that most of us probably as kids had that our parents put in a crib, and it was to prevent a kiddo that might scoot or roll against it and then be able to become suffocated, unfortunately.
2: So that it. has changed. Has. That is, the grandma's going to be standing there saying, tuck that baby in, you know, get the bumpers. No, that's all changed. That has, and it, it was interesting
5: for uh, one of the others was that, and you'll see a lot of grandparents do it, and, and parents where they will take the child when they're born or that infant, and they'll tuck their arms by the side, and they'll do that, what we call a little baby burrito, and wrap them tightly in that blanket. And actually for infants, and if you look at them in ultrasound, which I often see during their prenatal care and in things, the kids have their little hands right by their face and that provides them comfort. So you're actually causing stress to that child and, and making that infant nurse when you tuck their arms and don't let them put their hands by their face. So we really encourage parents when they kind of swaddle them or tuck them tight to leave their hands by their face. And actually to be careful about those little mittens, even though people want to use them so they don't scratch their face, they, they like to have their fingers. They want to be able to put it by their mouth or, and again to try to mimic what, it, what uh, was going on for them when they were in the
1: womb. Did I hear you say that uh, kids who are in households where uh, the mom or the dad, where there's smoke, have an increased incidence, increased risk for sudden infant death syndrome? There has been some literature
5: out there that, to suggest that, yes. So that's why, and again... It, among many other factors that all of us would encourage our our patients to um, avoid smoking and uh, particularly not to smoke around their infant child or in the home, there has been some literature that has supported having a non-smoking home will reduce the incidence of SIDS.
1: What about breastfeeding? Where do you, are you a big proponent or?
5: <laughs> Great question. So there's a, a big movement to a kind of baby-friendly and to uh, encourage breastfeeding. And here's where and some of my patients will share sometimes that I have my my soapbox regarding it. I think that providing moms the opportunity when breastfeeding is their choice and what they want to do and providing them the support and resources to allow them to be successful, I think that's extremely important and something that we can all do to support them. Understandably, and as i've seen different articles had patients and reviewed things, there are some people who physically it may not be possible whether one mom had had cancer had had a mastectomy done, so she she can't breastfeed her child, so to put her in an environment and tell her breastfeeding is absolutely the best and the only way that their child will, you know, be healthier, most intelligent. I just I have a really hard time with that because again, through a lot of my mom's best efforts, they're they're trying their best and they're just not able to successfully breastfeed their child. So I always give a lot of them the scenario. I always just refer to them that as you know, physicians were thought to be fairly, you know, smart and intelligent, and that I always tell them if they'll stand a bunch of us in a room, they would never know who was breastfed or who was formula fed. So, again, <laughs> if, it, if it works for them, you know, great, and I'm here to support them. If, if it doesn't, that's okay, too. Babies will be just
2: fine. In our news meeting when we were talking about what has changed with babies, uh, the subject was washing babies, and specifically that it's getting longer and longer after our baby is born for their first bath. So t- talk about that a little bit. Part of it is with the cord. So the umbilical cord, we encourage the
5: parents not to submerge their belly button or where that cord is until it's fallen off. And the concern is, is that if their belly button's underneath the water, that it will uh, have water you know, remain in there. Potential for infection, things like that. Um, the other thing is, is that the infant has been in a water environment for a long time and then now they're outside. And if there's frequent washing or regular washing that it will further irritate the skin or dry out the skin. And the skin is very sensitive in those first couple of weeks. What I always tell parents is, you know, about every two to three days or so to do it. And, and just to be prepared for the fact that they will shed and they will have, you know, the kind of flaky skin and no matter how much they apply lotion to other stuff, it's just a very normal process and that the child will go through. And also that they're going to have a variety of rashes. And so I always encourage them to let me know if they have concerns and talk to
2: them about them. Speaking of parents, sometimes for some people, it can be a little bit uh, of a whirlwind when you have a new baby in your house. So we've been talking about the baby. Let's talk now about mom and dad just for a moment. Give them a little piece of advice of what they can do to take care of themselves.
5: Great question. So I always encourage my my moms when I see them, whether it's um, the father or another parent or a friend, whoever's going to be their support person, that they have someone for support and that they remember kids are meant to cry. Their only ability as a newborn to tell us when they want something is to cry. And long-term, they won't remember it. So, again, if they fed them, if they've changed their bottom, if they've burped them, they've done everything they can, it's okay to lay them in their pack and play or lay them in their bassinet or crib and they might just need to cry and most of them will either figure it out they'll either stop they'll fall asleep or then i tell the parents go outside or go somewhere for 15 minutes take a break and then come back and you will feel refreshed and then you'll be able to figure it out but that's just they
2: they all cry and they're all going to be okay in the end
1: That's really good advice. Bottom line, just let them cry. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: thanks for filling us in on the latest in newborn care, Dr. Allen. Dr. Summer Allen is a specialist in family medicine at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me.
1: That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org,